Folks, if you could turn your Bibles to Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1. We are going to be reading a prayer this morning that actually says nothing about Jesus' birth. But I'll explain why we're starting here in just a moment. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. Ephesians 1, 15, we'll go all the way to the end of the chapter. And as we read God's word, I invite you to please stand together as you're able. Paul says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is God's word. You may be seated. I recently had the chance to visit the Wright Brothers Memorial over there by the base. While I was there in front of this stone monument with a plaque on it commemorating the invention of the airplane, I even saw large military cargo planes flying overhead. It was just amazing to see. This was commemorating a 1903 event, 120 years later. There are state-of-the-art vehicles flying overhead. It's not that long, but there's been a lot of progress. On the plaque at this memorial, it reads this way. Through original research, the Wright brothers acquired scientific knowledge and developed theories of aerodynamics, which enabled them in 1903 to build and fly at Kitty Hawk the first power-driven man-carrying aeroplane capable of flight. So through original research, they acquired knowledge which enabled them to fly. In other words, there were a few things that they had to nail down that were absolutely necessary if they were going to pull off flight. In the same way, some things are necessary if we are going to be able to do something in our present day that may seem as impossible as flight in 1903, which is to have and maintain true hope. For all of our longings, for all of our wishes, we live in a world that has exhausted its solutions, and we'll, we will be left famished for hope if we do not find it elsewhere. To date, no one has found a cure for suffering. Whether your common cold or your debilitating disease or your grief, no one has yet determined a way for you to avoid them. 
No one has figured out a way to help us not be as weak and helpless as we truly are. No one has yet figured out how to cast a spell that will make everything in your life or even a particular situation better. The reason why is that we don't get to hope through original research and the raw acquisition of knowledge as if we're inventing an airplane. We must get there a different way. We'll be looking at two passages today, both concerning what Jesus has to do with our hope, but we can sum up the entirety of both of them in this way. You can have hope that soars above sin, suffering, and death by having your heart exposed to the glory of Christ in his humble arrival. Everyone is looking for hope. Some promising note in our future, the silver lining, the bright side, the light at the end of the tunnel. We have all these sorts of phrases, I think, because we want hope so badly. But you will not find it apart from Christ. In fact, what we find in Christ is something far better, far more sustaining, far more trustworthy. He gives hope that isn't just survival hope. He gives hope that enables singing in a jail cell kind of hope. Hope that completely alters our grief. Hope that anchors the soul, to borrow a phrase from Hebrews. And the coming of Jesus in the flesh as a child is what made a definitive change to our hope forever. You can have hope that soars above sin, suffering, and death by having your heart exposed to the glory of Christ in his humble arrival. Three points this morning. The first is we're going to start in Ephesians 1 where we read an Advent prayer for hope. Ephesians 1 doesn't say anything about Advent, but it has much to say about who it is that came to us and what can be true for those who believe in him. The reason for starting here is that the Ephesian believers that Paul is writing to occupy the same era that you and I do. Just like you and I, they didn't see Jesus firsthand when he walked the earth. They weren't there kneeling by the manger with the shepherds when Jesus was born. They didn't hear Jesus' teaching. They didn't watch him perform miracles. They didn't watch as he carried a cross up a hill to be crucified. They didn't hear him breathe his last or witness the darkness or the torn veil. They didn't run with Peter to the empty tomb. Instead, they were lost in Ephesus, far away from Jerusalem. But somewhere along the line, they heard the good news, and by the regenerating power of the Spirit, they believed in Jesus and all he did for them. They began worshiping the risen Lord and studying the word, practicing the Lord's Supper and baptism, teaching all that Jesus had commanded, and they committed themselves to waiting for Jesus' return. All of those things just like you and I are doing even this morning. It's for these Christians that Paul prays this, this beautiful prayer. But it's not just a beautiful one. It's very specific and it points to what he as an apostle and as a pastor feels that Ephesian, the Ephesian Christians need the very most. Listen to the word that in these verses. It tells us why Paul is praying these specific things. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering in you, my, you in my prayers that 
the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What makes Paul's top request on behalf of the Ephesians? What specifically do they need? The answer is simple. It starts with that first that. They need the God of our Lord Jesus Christ to enlighten their hearts with a truer and deeper knowledge of himself. In Wright Brothers' terms, there is knowledge that they have not yet fully acquired, and they don't get it by research. Rather, it is internal spiritual knowledge that must be brought on by God. Hence, why Paul is praying to God and not just instructing the Ephesians. Again, in Wright Brothers' terms, they must know and love Christ more deeply if they are to fly on wings of faith, if they are to to defy the gravity of sin with its weights and suffering, sorrows, and death's grim grasp. They need this to happen. And Sovereign Grace Church Dayton is right there with them. Of all the things Paul could have been praying for on behalf of these people, he doesn't pray for more provision, not a change of circumstance, not even a change in their lifestyle per se, though he gives instructions later. Their deepest need and our deepest need is spiritual. You may think that the thing that needs to change in your life is for the difficulty switch to be turned from on to off right now, when in reality what you truly need is the dimmer switch of the light of the glory of Jesus to be brought brighter and brighter in your heart. You may feel as if the pieces of your life need rearranged, when in reality God can sustain you with hope if the pieces of your heart are rearranged, such that you see Jesus more clearly and rely on him fully based on the hope that you've been given in him. It's like when you first wake up in the morning. You have a series of things that you need to do to get ready for the day. But if you try to do it in the dark, you may as well forget it. You need light first. And by the way, I'm using lots of light switch examples because of the word enlightened that Paul uses, meaning to give light. There should be a well-worn path in our minds that goes something like this. I know it feels like there are 10 million things to do or work on or to even simply attempt today. But my primary need is for the lights of my understanding and affection for Jesus to be turned on or else I may lose my bearings in the midst of everything else. We are trying to make our lives seem and feel Christian without having beheld the Christ whom we are to love and worship and who we think we've got figured out by now, then we are actually going to find ourselves groping around in the dark, lacking the very things that this light is supposed to produce. The first of which is hope. Hope is the first outcome of three that Paul mentions here. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Two other major outcomes are mentioned here, but we'll be focusing on that first one. Knowing what is the hope to which God has called you. By the way, uh, this this isn't always front and center uh, for us as pastors, but but there are a few things that, that we would want more for you as a church than to know 
exactly what kind of hope you really have in Christ. That's, that's a need that we all have and that we all need the Spirit for. Every person in this room and every person in the world has spent time longing for something. Even now, you long for a wrong to be made right or an illness to be healed or an end to the world's problems. You have ambitions or desires that you would love to see come to fruition. You wish for a friend or for a spouse. You long for your efforts and your life to amount to something. You long for answers to tough questions. You long for acceptance and love. You long for something to heal you from past traumas in real ways. You, may, you yourself may not be enduring suffering, but someone dear to you is, and you are longing that things will change. As a Christian, you may long to not be ensnared in the same sin any longer. You long to live in a place and a culture where God and his moral standards are upheld and not dragged through the mud. No matter the case, every human that lives in this broken world has bitter longing. Deep things wrong with us in our world that we desperately want to change. The role of hope is to direct us towards a solution and a fulfillment of those longings. But we're often turned this way and that to counterfeit counterfeits that we wish would be that silver bullet to our longings, but they wind up falling short. When I have a migraine, I hope for ibuprofen to nip it in the bud, but often that doesn't quite cut it. That's a lot like what happens when we have these massive longings, but nothing on this earth can take care of them. No matter how much we escape or distance ourselves from people, no matter how much R&R time we take, no matter how much we medicate or numb or soothe or sleep, here we are still left with a sort of bitter aftertaste wondering if we can have any sort of legitimate hope and we find ourselves starving for it. You may even be in a place where you know that Jesus can give you hope, but that too doesn't seem to cut it. That's exactly why Paul wants you to have a true and deepening spiritual knowledge of Christ, to take your hope and expand it until you know what kind of hope you really have been called to. I'm using the word, and we'll use the word hope a lot. What's a simple definition, definition of hope? The short answer, hope is longing for something good. A better answer from an author much more thorough than me states, biblical hope not only desires something good for the future, it expects it to happen. So not only desires that thing in the future, but it, it has a certain confidence and expectation that it's going to happen. All of us have desires for good in the future. What we need, though, is confidence to expect that it will happen. That sort of confidence is only found in the hands of God himself, and he offers it in abundance to those who have trusted in his son. When we look to our future, we need to see the future that Jesus has promised, not the grim prospects of the empty promises of the world. We don't need an ambiguous hope of greener grass or some temporary painkiller. We need hope that is sure, hope that is real, hope that is verifiable, hope that is promising and good, hope that is reliable in the toughest of times. 
I pray that the Spirit will work in us so that you would grasp exactly the kind of hope we have in Christ, a hope that soars above the groaning and pain and possible loss ahead for you while you wait for Jesus to come back. In order to know what shape that hope takes, we need to answer this question. How does the coming of Jesus as a child change our hope? For now, we're going we're gonna to be leaving Ephesians because it doesn't specifically point us to the advent of Jesus, but it provides a launch pad of hope that will help us understand the significance of Christ's first coming because we want to know an answer to that question. What difference has he made? How has, does the coming of Jesus Christ as a child change our hope? Second point, in Advent, we're going to talk about an Advent story of hope fulfilled. And like it or not, we're sticking with the Wright brothers today because there's something to learn about the famous Kitty Hawk flight in 1903. On its second attempt, 120 years ago, the Wright brothers' fl flyer sailed for 120 feet, which took a whopping 12 seconds. Could you imagine what that moment was like for that team after countless wind tunnel experiments, all the wing shape adjustments, all the crash gliders, all the number crunching, all the mini breakthroughs, what would it have been like to see that thing fly? What if you took their perspective of someone assisting the Wright brothers and setting things up, working on the flyer, finally, when it launches off its takeoff rails and takes to the air, one second, two seconds, three, four, five, I just picture that person shouting, it's happening! He's doing it. And then finally, 120 feet later, later, it rests on the sand. There's a moment similar to this in Luke 2, just after Jesus' birth story, when his family takes him to Jerusalem to dedicate him to the Lord as a firstborn boy. Let's all turn together to Luke chapter 2. We're going to spend the rest of our time there. If you have your Bibles, go to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 22. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him, that is Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit to, into the temple and when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and he blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. We'll skip down to verses 36. And there was a prophetess, 
Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from, which, from when she was a virgin. And then as a widow until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Here, Mary and Joseph come across, they come to to the temple and they come across two people, Simeon and Anna. You may remember them, even though they're relatively obscure characters, they are only mentioned here in this brief episode. What's interesting is they have a lot in common. They are both aging, they're both devout worshipers of God who are worshiping in the temple that day. They also carry with them some prophetic significance. Anna is noted as a prophetess of God, and Simeon is notified by some sort, by, by, by a revelation from the Holy Spirit that he will not die until he has seen the Lord's Christ, the Messiah, who would bring good news, peace, and restoration to God's people. Another similarity between these two, and perhaps the most important one, is they are, they are both said to have been waiting for something. Simeon is waiting for the consolation of Israel, and Anna is waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Those are synonymous terms saying the same thing. They were waiting on the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel. In both cases, one of the core promises of God, and you can find it all over the pages of Exodus and Deuteronomy and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, goes something like this. I will be their God, they will be my people, and I'm going to dwell with them. The only tangible piece to that is that Israel ought to be looking for proof that God is going to dwell with them once again. As you know, God, God did dwell with his people at several points. He dwelled with Adam and Eve in the garden, and then the Israelites in the tabernacle and the temple. But in Simeon and Anna's day, where did he dwell? We have to rewind a few hundred years to find out because during Israel's exile in Babylon in Ezekiel chapter 10, Ezekiel has this vision of God's glory. God's glory is symbolic of his presence. He has this vision of God's glory raising up from the temple and leaving. It was a sign that God's judgment was on rebellious Israel And instead of him being with them in Jerusalem and condoning their idolatry and their unfaithfulness, he would leave the temple and be present with a remnant of people who would remain in exile for decades. Then, 70 years later, as recorded in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, a small band of those people returned from Babylon back to Jerusalem. They rebuilt the wall of the city for defense, and they even rebuilt the temple. They repent of their sins, and they covenant with God again. But here's... Here's the thing. This is right around the time when God stopped sending prophets to Israel. And at that point, God doesn't move back into his old house, the temple. The glory of the Lord isn't said to have returned. And yet, here Simeon and Anna are, 500 years later, waiting at the temple for God to dwell with them. And even though sacrifices were happening... It remains vacant. You can almost hear them singing that line of the song, Is He Worthy? 
Does our God intend to dwell with us again? And into the temple walks a young mother and her husband with a little boy. Yes, he does. Together, they bear witness that the arrival of this young boy is more significant than they could imagine. Anna responds, she doesn't even uh, necessarily cross paths with uh, Mary and Joseph. It doesn't seem to say so. She, she's a prophetess, and she automatically starts giving thanks to God for this Jesus, for this coming. And then she starts telling others who are also waiting for the redemption of, of Jerusalem. For Simeon, as the, the Holy Spirit came upon him, he says, Lord, Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. It's as if both of these people who were stuffed full with hope and anticipation are saying, it's happening. He's doing it. The promised one is here, and the Lord is saving his people. The reason why we're going to this story is because it's a glimpse of not only what it means to be waiting expectantly with hope, but it's also a clear picture of how the coming of Jesus changed everything for those who long for God to do what he says he will do. Which brings us to an answer to our question, point number three, how Advent changes our hope. Simeon and Anna acknowledged that the arrival of Jesus Christ to earth was a seismic shift of hope. What was unseen and far off had become visible and very, very near, even such that Simeon could take Jesus up in his arms. They wondered if God would dwell with them, and here he is, God in flesh. Much like Simeon and Anna, we now find ourselves in a holding pattern or a hoping pattern, if you will. What we do not We do not see Christ because he came and lived and died, but he has ascended and he has been seated at the right hand of God in heaven. And we are waiting. Pastor Steve said something last week, I I believe, that was very simple but worth repeating. We know Jesus is coming again because he came the first time. Arguably, the more miraculous has already happened. Jesus broke the centuries-long silence of God speaking to his people. God did not send another prophet. He sent his very own son. He sent him as a flesh and blood helpless child. And what he did while he was here was unfathomable. He performed miracles that bore witness to the fact that this was truly God. Then he did the unthinkable by sacrificing himself in the flesh as one who could die and would choose to die for the sins of the world. Then the unthinkable again. This same Jesus who subjected himself to both infancy and execution rose from the dead, securing salvation from sin and death for all who would believe in him. Even with Jesus having accomplished all that, even if we know he has been seated at the right hand of God, he rules and reigns right now, it is still very possible for us to feel short on hope. That's why I think what Jesus says to his disciples before he ascended to heaven is absolutely essential for us and our hope. Do you remember what he promised to them in John 14? If you love me, 
you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to do what? To be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Friends, we are waiting and hoping in a similar way to Simeon and Anna. And yet, the difference between us and them is that the word made flesh still dwells with us by his Holy Spirit, the helper. The spirit is here now dwelling in us as his people. And church, I just ask, why is he called the helper? Is it not that we are in desperate need of hope in the coming of Christ while he is away? Is it not that left by ourselves, we would be so discouraged and we'd be robbed of any legitimate hope? The Spirit dwells with you in part to assure you that Jesus will come to deliver you because he has already come once. Much of the work is done. He is patiently waiting as we proclaim the good news of his coming and his death and resurrection to bring others along with us into this hope. Then, at the appointed time, he will finish the job. The first coming of Jesus has changed everything. Jesus has won for us forgiveness from our sins by securing our eternal hope. He has given us his spirit as this life ring, this buoy along the way. But many of us still wonder about one key thing. What exactly can ensure, what, what, what specifically can and should we be hoping for? I know that God living with us on a new heavens and a new earth is not necessarily where God fulfills my wish list of extravagant vacations, or is it? Here's something that's fully true and fair game when it comes to our hope in Christ all of our deepest longings will be fulfilled in him. We know some of the specifics. We know he will give us eternal life. There there will be no tears, no pain, no sorrow, nothing accursed. But all of our deepest longings will be fulfilled in him. Your longing for healing will be satisfied and surpassed. Your longing for constant bliss and pleasure, satisfied and surpassed. Your hope For a world of peace, devoid of any conflict, will be satisfied and surpassed. Your longing to live in a culture and people where God is honored and not defamed, satisfied and surpassed. Your longing to feel close to God for a change will be satisfied and surpassed. Your longing for an end to the turmoil and anxiety of your life will be satisfied and surpassed. And it is only possible to experience it because Jesus came as a child. He has rescued you by the blood of his cross. He's given you faith to believe in him and has promised to come again. Apart from him, apart from Jesus Christ, we would still be those who, as Ephesians 2 describes, as those who have no hope and are without God in the world. If you are someone who has these deep longings, which all of us do, but you have searched and searched and not found what will satisfy you, If you are riding a a very precarious tightrope of, I hope my safety nets of job security or my marriage or my retirement will hold up, friend, that tightrope will collapse in a moment one day, either before you die or when you die. And those safety nets will do nothing for you at that point, proving that you had no legitimate hope to begin with. Your only hope, only singular hope, 
is to trust in Christ who gives real hope, not only for this life, but especially the life to come. It simply requires acknowledging that you are are guilty before God for your sin and turning away from that sin, turning away from treating yourself as the ruler of your own life and turning to Christ who out of love was killed in your place to pay your debt of sin and to give you the promise of eternal life. He can give you the sort of hope that you have always longed for, one that secures your future no matter how difficult your present will be. Apart from him, we have no hope. With him, church, we have all hope. We have every reason to look ahead with a promising gleam on the horizon that tells us that all will be well one day. Not just because it will become well, but because he, our redeemer, will himself make it well. Now let me clarify just a couple of things that might be in the back of your mind. What about specific things that I'm not sure will come about even if I do hope in Christ? For example, Uh, scripture does not guarantee that your hardest labor for Christ will turn into noticeable fruit. But you can and should hope that your labor isn't in vain and that Christ himself will reward you on that day. Scripture does not guarantee that there will be a stop to your grieving at any point in this life or that a particular loss won't be felt years from now. But you can and should hope for a definitive lifting of that grief one day. Scripture does not guarantee you that the scars you bear from the sin of others will disappear, but you can and should hope for both an explanation of the why behind those things and also an eternal relief from emotional pain. Scripture does not guarantee that your adult child or your unsaved friend will come to Christ, but you can and should trust that the explanation as to why not will be true, a very true and also a very satisfying answer one day. Scripture does not guarantee that your longing for a child will mean you will receive that child or perhaps receive a child back one day, but you can and should be hoping that Jesus will, in a very real way, provide closure and peace for you. Scripture does not guarantee that you will be fully free from wrestling with that particular sin in your life, but you can and should trust that Jesus will present you guiltless on that final day. Scripture does not guarantee that that person who harmed you in some way will receive justice here on earth, but you can and should trust and hope that God will judge justly on that final day. Scripture does not guarantee that you will not suffer. In fact, it guarantees the opposite, but you should can and should hope for the fact that suffering will not forever undo you or rob you of your future with Christ and that there will be a day when all suffering, whether physical pain or persecution, will be a thing of the past. Apart from these specifics, take the very thing that you are hoping for right now. What do you wish would be radically different about your life one day? Jesus does not promise to fulfill that hope in the specific way that you're thinking of, but you can and should hope for him to fulfill it because all of our deepest longings at their root will be fulfilled in Christ. That takes faith, doesn't it? Sometimes we don't feel like we could really give ourselves over to that. Like all of my deepest longings? But it's true and we have the spirit to help us when our hope seems to fade or disappear altogether. You can have hope that soars above sin, suffering, and death by having your heart exposed to the glory of Christ and his humble arrival. 
at the right hand of Christ is fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. Not joy tinged with sorrow, fullness of joy, pleasure forever, delight in his presence, zero worry, perfect peace. Our purpose of worshiping God in eternal unbroken fellowship with him will be fulfilled and enjoyed. Friends, we have so much to hope for. Right now, you may find yourself looking up in the skies like Simeon and Anna, waiting, waiting for consolation, waiting for redemption. As you do, though, and as you are given spiritual eyes to know Jesus and understand him in the fullness of his glory, may you grow in knowing the hope he has afforded you. It is not, it's not a small hope. It's not a dim hope. As the song says, we have a bright hope for tomorrow. Bright hope. In fact, we as Christians should be living with a constant readiness for the return of our master, like those who are, whose lamps are well stocked and who have been dedicated to his purposes while he's gone. We want him to come, don't we? You'll recognize this as a Christmas song that we sang earlier, but this is a Christmas song and a second coming song. Come, thou long expected Jesus, born to set your people free from our fears and sins. Release us, let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth, thou art. Dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king. Born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in our hearts alone. By thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. Until then, church, may we be those who, when questioned, are always prepared to give a defense for what? Not just what we believe, but as Peter says, that we will be always prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks us for the reason, for the hope that is in us. May we be like the Thessalonians who are described as those with a steadfastness of hope. May we be those who abound in hope because we belong to the God of hope who sent his son as a child to make sure that we know that he will dwell with us again forever. One of the reasons why I'm thankful that we celebrate the Lord's Supper every week is because we're commanded to do this until Jesus comes back. In other words, every time we take the bread and the cup in our hands, we are invited to rekindle our hope in Christ. As those who believe in Christ and have given our lives to him, we come and we commune with the risen Lord while we take this meal. And we are also saying together, we rely on this sacrifice and we trust in you and we will go on hoping and trusting in you until you return and there's no need for hope anymore. So it's for this reason that if you do not believe in Jesus and haven't entrusted your life to him, that we ask that you not take this meal because what's most important is that you ask yourself about your future and consider whether or not you have hope after death. So rather than receiving this cup and bread, receive Christ, believe him, stop trusting in yourself to keep yourself clean before God, but instead acknowledge that he is the king and he is the one who shed his blood in your place to save you. I would love to talk to you about that after the service.